So in this first conference, um, kind of like my standard for all retreats is just to lay out a theological context and and to reflect on this kind of question of who is God and like what does it mean to be created in His image? Right? What does it mean to be created in His image? Because all of us participate in the life of God, you know, in our daily lives. Um, our struggles, they come from that kind of place of dissonance between what does my life look like and what is it supposed to look like? You know, like, I know the church says this, but my experience is this. And how do I, like, move towards that ideal? You know, to move towards that ideal. Because that means moving towards being holy. And holiness is, you know, union with our Lord is holiness. Holiness is integration. You know, last night I probably gave the most concise autobiography that I've ever given, and it was probably confusing for anybody who doesn't know me, right? So, um... So I'll backtrack a little bit and just introduce, you know, kind of myself, my vocation story a little bit. And then, um, try to model for you in a way, like how I've come to know myself in the context of this story that we find in scripture. Right. So, so my story, my family story, it starts with my dad who, my dad grew up in Ireland when he was, um, 15, his father died. Um, and he was kind of raised mostly by his aunt. Um, his mom was pretty distant. It was a very clerical culture in Ireland at the time. Um, like he would often kind of beat me with, uh, when I was a seminarian, he would be very anti-clericalism, you know, because he grew up in a world where like, if you did not say hi to the priest, like you're walking down the street and the priest is walking down the street, if you didn't salute him, um, he would show up at the house and, like berate your parents for not raising you correctly to respect the priesthood. Like that's the environment that he grew up in. Uh, when he was 19, he was building a hospital in Letterkenny in Northern Ireland and Northwest Ireland. And uh, he met a woman and fell in love and they got married. They had three children. My sister Donna was born in London and then raised by her Italian grandmother in Ireland, and now she's married to an Italian who's run four Irish pubs in Rome, which is pretty great. Uh, my sister Jacqueline was born in Ireland, and uh, my brother Mark was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So dad moved here when he was 22. My brother was born in Tulsa, and then when my brother was about two years old, around there, my dad abandoned that family. So dad suffered from alcoholism. Um, kind of just an unfortunate life. Like my experiences, I don't know a lot about the details, but there were a lot of times in his life where like things just got too heavy and he tried to start over. So he kind of left that family, moved around the country, met some people in New Orleans who were moving to Detroit to work in the automobile factories. Um, kind of the way I have come to understand that story is he had nothing better to do. And so he went with them. Um, ended up meeting my mother when he got to Michigan. So my mother, when she was in high school, she fell in love with the boy and they got married. Um, had two sons, my brothers James and John. 
uh, when John was four or five, I think, they got divorced. So dad makes it to Michigan, meets my mom. I was born. You know, they got married in the church. They went to the priest. He helped them both get annulments. They got married. Um, and then two weeks short of my second birthday, my mother died of cervical cancer. Right, so the narrative I grew up with was that my mother had cervical cancer while I was in utero, that you know, she had chosen to give birth to me. And, um, and at some point, you know, my dad would tell the story of how like her appendix like swelled or something like that. And it kind of like invaded so that the cancer wouldn't invade where I was growing inside of her. Um, but she died two weeks short of my second birthday. And so within about a year, my dad married my stepmom and they had two daughters and a son, my sister, Sarah, my sister, Katie, my brother, Kevin. And then when I was a sophomore in college, my dad and my stepmom also got divorced. And so I would say that's how I became the family life office director for our diocese. But the important thing is that's the family I grew up in. And it's the family that our Lord called me out of. And it's the family that I learned to pray in. It's the family that I learned to love in, for good or for bad. And... When I was young, I would pray Psalm 139 before I knew about Psalm 139, which says, Lord, I praise you for the wonder of my being. I praise you for I'm wonderfully made. You know, and our standard for wonderfully made, like if we're idealistic, is kind of like, well, that's what people can say if they grew up in an amazing Catholic home and they were always raised right and they were perfectly loved. And, you know, like that would be wonderfully made. Like my life sucks. But wonderfully made in the sense that it provokes awe, right? It provokes a sense of awe and wonder and speechlessness at the circumstances of our lives. Because I would marvel at the fact that God chose to take my dad from Ireland, put him, move him across an ocean through all this kind of circumstances and crazy things and chance encounters with people to decide to just move to Michigan to meet my mom so that he could put their DNA together and make me just in time before my mom died. Like, I've got limited time to make this one person... <laughs> And if he went through all that trouble in order to create me, there must be a reason for my existence. And so I started to ask that reason. And I was about seven when I th- thought about being a priest for the first time. And in my logic, it was sort of, you know, I really wanted to meet my mother. I wanted to know who she was. You know, the circumstances of my family, and it's probably it's a matter of public record. You could do research. Uh, my stepmom and my real mom are first cousins, which also was really confusing growing up because, like, great uncle becomes grandpa. Grandpa kind of steps out of the picture because he doesn't get along with that brother who's my great uncle. Like, my great aunt is my great aunt by birth and my great aunt by step marriage, and. It was just really confusing. You know, my cousins were actually my fourth cousins. And, um, like, at one point I felt really, like, vengeful and angry. I was like, I'm going to marry my cousin, so grandpa has to explain it. Right? <laughs> um, you know, that, but that's the, that's the life I grew up in. Um, and I didn't actually ever see a picture of my mother until I was about 12 or 13. 
And I remember asking my dad and I was so like nervous, like, uh, do you have a picture of her? And he was like, um, yeah. And he gets up, he walks across the room, reaches into this cupboard above the stove, the secret like cupboard. And he pulls out this eight by 10 beautiful picture of my mother. And I remember thinking to myself, like, that's been there the whole time. But that was the first time I got to see it. So when I was younger, I really want to meet my mother, and my mother's in heaven. Therefore, I have to get to heaven. Huh. So I guess I'll become a priest, because all priests go to heaven. Right. That's when I first started thinking about priesthood. High school, I got really involved in youth ministry, and at that point, I felt our Lord calling me, you know, to something more. Uh, I asked lots of priests in my life about going to the seminary, and um, they all told me to wait and go later. Like, you can go to college first, and, you know, then maybe if you still feel called, you can go. And, and at the time, I remember feeling like, ah, oh, everybody's rejecting me, and why isn't this working out, and I really want to go. You know, later on, looking back in retrospect, I think they were just trying to protect me. Because the seminaries in the 90s weren't very, they weren't all very good. So I went to military academy at West Point, spent four years there, almost left halfway through military academy to go to the seminary again. Um, Decided to stay and uh, graduated, became an infantry officer in the army. It was there that our Lord formed more of my masculine identity that hadn't been formed within my family. Um, spent three years on active duty, and then I found myself at a place in my life where I, I was faithful to going to Mass, but I was very unfaithful in my moral life. Um, at that time in my life, you know, I had this tension going on between, like, what does God want and what is possible? So I felt like I'm supposed to be a priest— but I'm stuck in this military service obligation. I have like five years to serve. That tension is too hard for me to deal with. And so I'm going to relieve the tension by getting God out of my life as much as possible. And the most expedient way of doing that is to stay stuck in sin. And particularly to stay stuck in sexual sin because it's just the most expedient way of keeping God out of our lives. Jesus says, blessed are the pure of heart for they shall see God. And he means it. So the impure of heart cannot see God. And at that time, I was, I was dating a girl. She ran one of the pubs that I used to go to. She had a one-year-old child. She was separated, not yet divorced. And she wanted me to move in with her. And so, again, I have, like, moral formation. I know, like, that's not right. And it would seem like a step too far but I also found myself in that situation, and how did that happen? And I remember looking at myself in the mirror, just like my heart sunk, and saying, who are you? Like, what happened to you? And I went on this long drive to go see my brother in Florida, and I'm driving back, and then just like crying out from my heart to our Lord, saying, like, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And I heard him say really clearly, I want you to be a priest, stupid Like, I've always wanted you to be a priest. So I went to the church I attended, prayed the rosary at the Marian Shrine, and 
basically said, okay, I'm going to ask one more time about going to the seminary. If it works out, it works out. If it doesn't work out, I'm never asking you again. And I'm going to go find somebody who's a good person and get married. Two days later, my chaplain walks by my office, and I stop him with this ridiculous question. Like, chaplain, do you know any way I could get out of the Army early, go to the seminary? Maybe in nine years I'll be ready to come back in as a chaplain. And he says, oh, the priest recruiter is going to be here on Friday. Just like happened to be that week. I go see him. And he says, oh, I've helped two other West Pointers get out of the Army early. Here's all the paperwork you need. Crap. Like, now I actually have to do this. It's not just something I talk about or something I use as a defense to not fall in love. It's like, I have to do this. Um, And then the word started to leak out that I wanted to go to the seminary. And a friend of mine, uh, Matt Scalia, whose dad is Justice Scalia, he was a lieutenant in my infantry battalion. He had been going to spiritual direction to this priest in Kentucky, and he comes by and he he says, you should really come meet Father so-and-so, and, and, you know, he's great. He chews tobacco. You'll really like him. (laughs) So, So I go meet this priest, and he's kind of another, like, authoritarian priest. Um, which maybe I needed at that time in my life. And, and he was just like, Sean, what do you want to do? And I was like, uh, I think God wants me to be a priest. Good, so do I. That means he does. I don't really think that's how discernment works. but. <laughs> and then he asks where. He's like, where do you want to be a priest? And I didn't know there were options. I said, I'll probably go home to Michigan where I'm from. And he just looks at me, Michigan, I don't know Michigan. Lincoln, you should go to Lincoln. I'm thinking in my head, like, you should go to hell. <laughs> like, why would I want to go to Lincoln, Nebraska? It's like a cornfield, and there's a football stadium somewhere. So I came here simply to appease him, and it just felt like home. Like, that I remember very clearly, like, some dreams I'd had and some other things. It just, like, seemed like where I was supposed to be. So I left the Army in 1999, went to the seminary, spent, you know, six years as a seminarian. Um, and then after graduation, like I said, I taught at Pius, was in parishes, went to the bishop desk to, to go back into the Army because my plan for my life was, you know, seminary, three years in parish life, another 20 years in the military, culminating in being the chief of chaplains of the Army and a general officer and all of that. And uh, that's what I thought I was going to be. I was going to be the airborne ranger, Arabic-speaking army priest, because we need one of those, right? And I went to Bishop Bruskowitz to ask him, and he was very good. He was just like, oh, you'll be great, you'll be great, you'll probably be a general someday, but... Bishops always have a but. But I think you should go study marriage and family. You can do whatever you want. I think you should go to graduate school, he made a promise of obedience. So I ended up going to graduate school in 2009, um, which saved my priesthood and like, changed the course of my life, changed my relationship with Jesus. Like, I figured out what it means to be a son of the eternal father. It was super painful figuring all that out. In other conferences, I might talk about that more. But I came back in 2013 and um, spent a year in the religious ed office and then another, like, the last five years in the family life office. 
And so that narrative of my own life, like the primary question of my life has always been like, what does it mean to love? Like, what does it mean to love? Like, what is love supposed to look like? And it's a question that we wrestle with. You know, it's a question that we are constantly in search of. It's in constant need of refining. You know, what does it mean to be loved by someone? And is there some active thing on my part that I have to do in order to be loved by someone? You know, lots of times spiritual directees ask me, okay, Father, I know that I need to learn how to be loved, so what do I do? And the answer is usually, like, you have to do less, not more. Like, what's the list of hoops I need to jump through in order to surrender? Well, like, that's kind of an oxymoron. Like, you don't do something to surrender, you just surrender. But there is something that has to, you know, there, there's a order and a process by which we surrender. And that process of surrender, that process of learning to love, is, it's what's manifested in Scripture, right? Like, this is a book about love. You know, in marriage preparation, we say it starts with a marriage, in the Garden of Eden, it ends with a marriage in the book of Revelation. In the center, there's the Song of Songs, which is a beautiful integration of human and divine love. In that story of salvation, right, like when we tell it, again, in review, when we tell it, it just sort of goes like this. God created the world and everything was good. Then something happened called original sin, which caused the distortion. Right? So in the beginning, love was good. Love was free. John Paul II says that the human person was penetrable and transparent, right? Penetrable and transparent means we can be acted on by another. Penetrable means like that I can be acted on something by something that's higher than me. It's what we mean by vulnerability. Like God acts in my life. It's penetrable. Transparent means that I live in such a way that you're able to see on the outside what's on the inside. You're able to see what's on the outside, from the outside, what's on the inside. That's what perfect transparency means. Perfect transparency is only possible in a trusting relationship, though. It's only possible in a trusting relationship. So in the beginning, penetrable and transparent. Genesis chapter 2 says, naked without shame. So you're able to see everything on the outside. My inside's revealed in my outside. And I'm not afraid that you're going to exploit me, that you're going to reject me, that you're going to use this information against me, that somehow what I tell you is going to be twisted and it's going to turn into something different. And trust is necessary for that. So in the beginning, there was perfect trust. And they were able to live in that way. And that's the ideal that we try to strive to get back to. But it's only possible when there's trust. In my experience as a, in my priesthood, like I 
have an ideal of living in a transparent way. Like, why? Because I grew up in a family with lots of secrets. You know, we had lots of secrets in my family. Like, it was a secret that my stepmom wasn't my real mom. That was a secret. The cousins that knew me growing up, they never knew she wasn't my real mom until they were, like, 30. So it wasn't like a, shh, don't tell anybody. It was just we lived our life in a rhythm in such a way that it was never acknowledged or drawn attention to. But it was a secret that I was keeping because it seemed like it was wrong. You know, and, and I grew up like, you know, my stepmom, and I'm, she doesn't make her evil, right? And I think we, a lot of us have had this experience, and some of us have done this, right? Like, but it was a pretty consistent experience in our household where, like, she would get frustrated with my brothers and sisters, you know? And kind of like, you little da-da-da-da, like, clean up that I told you. Phone rings. Hello? Everything's perfect at the Kilcali home. (laughs) And I remember, like, witnessing this as a young person, just thinking, like, what a faker. What is she doing? (laughs) And, of course, we don't, like, want everybody to know those things. But they should be things that we're working on integrating um, and so I've tried to live a pretty transparent life. Like, if you ask me how I'm doing, I'll probably say, I'm good. Yeah, not really. But, I mean, like, life's good. Like, Jesus is good, and life's hard right now. Like, that's probably the answer I would give. I have to tell my staff oftentimes that sometimes my body looks like I'm carrying a lot of load because I am carrying a lot of load. But it's other people's load. It's not my load. And it's not your load. So if my face looks like really drawn down, it's not about you. Don't worry about that. Like it's just, you know, I probably just got done talking to somebody who's going through a really hard time and my empathy kicked in and my body like shows. So don't, don't worry about that. It's like that's just how my affect is, which helps to communicate that with my staff. Um, but I also have experienced because I've been transparent and I tell people, yeah, I went away to counseling for a while and our Lord like healed all this stuff. And I do that so that people know I'm a human. Um, but I have had like sometimes brother priests will say, well, you know, like Kilcully doesn't know what he's talking about because like he had to go away for a while and he's just working out his own issues. Like that has happened. It's happened with guys I was in grad school with and Actually, I had the experience maybe six months ago of a guy that knew me when I was in Rome, and he said, I went down to do a presentation for a seminary, and he said, yeah, I just need to apologize because I was one of those guys that thought that you were just working out your own issues, but you actually know what you're talking about, and this was really good. But it took time, and it's okay. Like, I just had to live in the tension of that. So in the beginning, like, there was this perfect openness and transparency because there was perfect trust. And then something happened. Like, what happens in original sin is it leaves us with this distortion about love and a rupture in trust. There's a rupture in trust. Like, now the other person's not trustworthy anymore. And so family life goes from, like, mother, father, natural children to kind of the families like lots of us grew up in or lots of us experience. You know, the family in distortion is the family of Israel, I always say. Right? The family of Israel is the family of Jacob. Jacob's story is he fell in love with Rachel, wanted to marry her. 
got tricked into marrying her uglier older sister, Leah. Um, so he marries her, and he's like, ah, wrong sister. And then the father says, well, you can work for me another seven years and then marry the woman you love. So finally, seven years later, he marries Rachel. But Rachel's infertile, and so she wants to have babies. So she says, take my concubine and have babies, and he does. And then Leah says, take my concubine and have babies, and he does. And then finally, Rachel has babies. Right, so the family in distortion is like one dad, four moms, 12 brothers who all hate each other and sell Joseph to the Egyptians. Right, it's just like the Kilkali family. Right, it's like a lot of our families. And then what happens next in this story of salvation is that Jesus enters into that family. Right, he enters into that mess of a family. And sometimes when we preach on the family, we say, be like the holy family. And we, like, that's our standard, right? That's our goal. Because Jesus entered into the world through the holy family. Right? So be like the holy family. And then most of you are sitting in the pews going, I wasn't conceived without sin. Like, ha. Ah. And my husband is not St. Joseph. <laughs> right? Because that's not where we are. <clears throat> But we've, we kind of forget, like, Matthew chapter 1, which tells us the family that Jesus entered into. It starts with Abraham, who was the father of Isaac, was the father of Jacob. It mentions, like, Tamar. Tamar was married to one of Judah's sons. He died. Then she married his next son, and he died. And then Judah didn't want to send her another son, and so he waited. And then she's, like, sitting here, like, off being a widow, and finally, here's her father-in-law's coming to town. So when Judah comes to town, she dresses like a prostitute, seduces him, gets pregnant by him, and then shows up with a baby and says, okay, now are you going to take care of me? Right? Not the holy family of Nazareth. Rahab, prostitute. Ruth is not a member of the people of God. She shouldn't even be in that family. The wife of Uriah, Bathsheba is not even named. And we have all these stories in our head, you know, it's like, oh, these like crazy people in our head, you know, which, I mean, that's the family that our Lord was born into. And then we hear the words, then was born Jesus, right? Then was born Jesus. What does that mean? Like, what does that carry for us in our hearts? That means if Jesus can be born into that, he can be born into this. If Jesus can be born into that mess, he can be born into my mess. So that he can redeem it, and it can be transformed, and we can grow in virtue, and we can have clarity, and hopefully someday get to heaven. That's the story of our lives. That's the roadmap of love. And all of our lives fit into that story. No, all of our lives fit in that story. Last night, I invited you to reflect on how did you get here? And like, what story does Jesus tell about your life? And when Jesus talks about your life story, you know, when my life story is like, I was born into a world where everything was good, like at a minimum in utero, everything was good. Then something happened. My mom died when I was two. Uh, my dad was an alcoholic and he was kind of distant in the household when I was growing up. No, we had these family secrets with regard to my mother and my stepmother. When I was 10 years old, I saw pornography magazines at a friend's house. When I was 14 years old, I had reconnected with my older brothers from my mother's first marriage. 
and we were trying to make up for all kinds of lost time. And so I went up there for a weekend, and I drove a car at 14. And I hit a stop sign, by the way, and a cop was behind us. That was amazing. Um, so I drove a car. I was offered pot, but I turned that down. Um, but I did watch my first pornographic movies, like in a really awkward scenario of a bunch of adults sitting around watching. And I think I drank as well that time because we had to make up for lost time, right? These are things that happen. When I was in high school, I had pretty weak masculine identity. The upperclassmen spread rumors about me that I was gay. All those things are things that happened in my life. And they caused the distortion about how I understood myself, how I understood God, how I understood relationships. But then something else happened. Jesus entered into my life in order to reveal to me who I am. In order to heal what needed healing, in order to supply what I didn't get, in order to make me a new creation in him. To make me a new creation in him so that I could glorify him in my life. You know, that's how he works. It's what he does. And the way we understand that story is the way we understand our relationship with him. You know, when somebody asks, like, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Or what's your relationship with Jesus? The answer to that question is, what story do you tell about your relationship with him? If somebody asks me, do I have a relationship with, like, Father, I don't know, Father Faulkner? Some of you know Father Faulkner. He's a good friend of mine. So, so I would say, yeah, so, so when I showed up at the seminary, Father Faulkner was like a 19-year-old arrogant seminarian who was teaching me, a 25-year-old army ranger, how to be a seminarian. You know, like little Joey Faulkner, who's like all of a 98 pounds soaking wet. And, uh, and he's like pretty smart, and I'm pretty smart, but we have very different backgrounds, and so we spent most of our time fighting with each other about stupid things. There was the night that we had a little breakthrough in our relationship where I taught him how to chew tobacco. <laughs> I'll let him tell you the details if you want to know them. Then we went to theology, and, uh, and we still like, kind of always like, butted heads about things. And um, then in, when we were ordained, there was kind of like the Father Faulkner fans and the Father Kilcally fans at Pius. And, uh, and we would have fights about, you know, whether, like, how to use relational terms and things like this. And then there was a period of time where we didn't talk at all. And... Uh, it was after I got back from Rome, and I had kind of gone through a healing process, and I shared some with him. And, and then, you know, he had gone on a retreat, and he came to a retraining that I gave, and, like, we started to be more vulnerable in our relationship. And now I call him every day. Because our Lord changed something in our relationship at that point. You know, so if you ask me, like, do you know that person? Like, like all of that story is an important part of our story. Because our Lord, like, redeemed it. You know, like, another good friend, priest friend that I have right now is Father Andrew Heeslip. And, uh, but it took, like, three years for us to establish enough trust to be able to have, like, a really good relationship. And there's a story, right? There's a story. 
And so, like, what's your story with Jesus? It involves, like, the whole gamut of your life and his part in it and how he saw you in it, how he walked with you when you were a sinner, how he loved you when you were a sinner. And that story, it should be a congruent story. It should be a congruent story. If I tell you, like, my relationship with Father Faulkner is simply like, oh, yeah, he's my good friend, and I call him every day, without telling you the other part, like, it's not as good a story. Because, like, the drama of the story is, like, this kind of competition, not talking, like, distance, and then, boom, something happened, and we're close. That's the drama of the story. And the same thing applies in our relationship with our Lord. But sometimes what we want is we want this story that's like, you know, sometimes we tell our story like God created the world and everything was good. And then like there was redemption. I'm going to skip like the distortion part. You know, I was born into a family where everything was good. Then I went to the seminary. It's not as good a story. Because there has to be a story of redemption. When St. Paul tells the story of his life. He says, I was the worst persecutor of Christians. I was the one they were piling up cloaks at my feet when they were stoning Stephen. I was going to haul off somebody else to bring him to Jerusalem in order to put him to death. And then he who knit me together in my mother's womb saw fit to enter into my life and it changed everything. And I was blinded. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I was like, who are you? And I'm Jesus, the one you were persecuting. And then the very person that I was going to haul off to jail to put to death opened my eyes for me. And I was baptized. And now I can't help but to preach the gospel. Right? He tells his whole story. And our temptation can be to compartmentalize or to like cut parts of our life out or to cut parts of our story out. instead of inviting our Lord to transform our entire life, to see that our entire life fits into that narrative. And it doesn't mean the bad things in our life control our lives. Like sometimes we don't want to consider our sinful past. Something I ask a lot of people is like, what if you in college, you were in the room right now and Jesus knocked on the door, what would you do? I'd kick college me out of the room. Right? Lots of us would do that. If Jesus knocked on my door, what would I do last night? I would, like, shut down Netflix and pull out, like, my Bible and look like I was preparing for the retreat. You know, because I have to look like I'm doing the thing. But who's our Lord interested in? The part of you that's a saint or the part of you that's a sinner? Like, who would our Lord go to dinner with? the version of you that's a saint or the version of you that's a sinner. Like in the Gospels, he would hang out with the version of you that's a sinner. In the Gospels, he would care for the most vulnerable version of you. And sometimes we carry suffering that's the result of the sin, but it's not even our sin, it's somebody else's sin. You know, betrayed wives that I work with, they carry a suffering that's a result of somebody else's sin. Right now, a lot of people in the church are carrying suffering that's a result of somebody else's sin. 
sometimes we even feel like that, like about being Catholic with all the news that's come out of the Pennsylvania grand jury report is because like our friends or family members who have left the church, like they're like trying to say, see, I told you that you shouldn't be Catholic. And there's a certain suffering we have that's the result of somebody else's sin. Or a victim of abuse carries a suffering that's the result of somebody else's sin. But that reality also fits into this story. Because Jesus himself suffered because of somebody else's sin. And when we come to experience that reality in our life, we're like Jesus. Whether it's from a family member or a friend or somebody else we're associated with or something that happened 50 years ago, we carry a certain suffering that's like the suffering of Jesus. And the only way for us to be able to carry that with grace is to enter into a deeper union with Jesus. To enter into a kind of deeper union with the one who was betrayed. A deeper union with the one who suffered because of the sin of the world. You know, and there's kind of a, like a roadmap to finding that union. And that union is, it exists in that space where we know that we are his beloved. And we surrender our lives to him. Because that, in fact, is what our Lord did. Like in the midst of criticism, in the midst of blame, in the midst of like the Pharisees and the scribes and all the things they accused him of, the only person who knows me is the Father. The only person who knows me is the Father. There's one point in John's gospel early on that our Lord kind of affirms his identity as the son of God. And then he says to his critics, I do not rely on human acceptance, right? Like I don't rely on human affirmation. Moreover, you do not have the love of God in you. The only one who knows me is the father. And each of us as individuals, our community, our church right now, we all experience ourselves as this kind of like family and distortion that our Lord is entering into to bring clarity. And the place that we have to go to is that place of letting him bring clarity in our own lives. You know, letting him bring clarity in our own lives. And so for 
kind of the rest of the morning until the next conference, I just invite you to just reflect with our Lord on your history. Like, how do you understand your story? The story of your relationship with Jesus. You know, the things that you thought it was, like where these distortions might have entered in. How does our Lord want to enter into your life to bring clarity right now? Like, where are the points that still don't make sense? Or in gratitude for the way that our Lord has entered in and brought clarity. And to just have a conversation with our Lord about that. Now, that conversation might sound like, Jesus, you know, remember when I was a kid and... uh, I was really struggling because um, nobody at school really understood me, and I was kind of being bullied, and I really felt alone. Like, what do you, what do you, what were you doing back then? Like, like, what do you think about that? Or Jesus, I thought I could trust everybody, and then somebody I should have been able to trust proved themselves to be very untrustworthy. My trust muscle's broken. What are you going to do about that? If there are ruptures because of your own sinful history, you know, things that you're still carrying where, like, you know our Lord's redeemed you because, like, that's what we believe about going to confession, but maybe you still carry guilt in your heart. Like, Jesus, do you remember the time I did thus and such a thing? Do you still love me? There was one retreat I went through my entire, like, sexual history. Do you just remember like in eighth grade when I was dating that one girl and I kind of pushed limits? Do you, do you still love me? Or Jesus, do you remember that one person I thought I was in love with? Let things go too far. Then I had all these regrets. Do you still love me? And just, like, walk through that. It might be Jesus. Remember that time I got pregnant and I was, like, totally, like, really angry at you because I thought I was practicing the NFP correctly? Do you still love me? Just whatever those points are. And just let him speak back to you. Just let him speak back to you. And you might come back to me with, like, Father, he doesn't say anything. Well, just sit with that. You know, ask for the grace to, like, make your mind quiet enough to be able to hear him. Because his answer is always the same. And this afternoon, um, I'm going to walk through a couple of scripture meditations that, you know, can kind of help us to understand like how our Lord would respond to us in our own lives. But just spend some time reflecting on, you know, 
how do you understand the story of your relationship with our Lord? Like, where has it been? What's your desire for where it will go? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you, and we praise you for entering into our lives to change everything. For making us a new creation in you. And we ask you in a particular way at this time. Just reveal yourself as the Lord of love. To reveal yourself as trustworthy. Help us to see how you have entered into our life over and over and over and over and over again. To reveal your faithfulness to us. That we may in turn place our faith and entrust our hearts to you. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.